What's up, everybody? Uh, today's episode is brought to you by FunctionalAnatomySeminars.com. Functional Anatomy Seminars is the website of the Functional Range Systems. If you want to know about upcoming seminars, online FRC certifications, Kinstretch certifications, Functional Range Assessment, etc., or if you want to learn more about the Functional Range Systems as a whole, please visit FunctionalAnatomySeminars.com. We are also brought to you by Westside Barbell. Um, visit westside-barbell.com for all you need to know about how to get extraordinarily strong and how to do it in a scientific manner. I always tell people if you are interested in getting strong, uh, you probably know about Westside Barbell. Uh, and if you don't, you're probably not as interested as you once thought. Uh, get to westside-barbell.com. Um, they have all of their methods out there to learn. They have uh, excellent uh, educational resources as well. They sell a lot of cool gear. If you use the offer code DRE10 at checkout, is it DRE10? I have to confirm that it's DRE10 at checkout. Yes, I believe it is DRE10 at checkout. You will get 10% uh, off of uh, their supplements, their educational material, uh, their gear, um, a lot of good stuff to see. Anyway, go to westside-barbell.com. Today's episode, I sit down with a friend and colleague of mine, um, Dr. Roger Menta. Dr. Menta is a sports specialist chiropractor, uh, and he is also a competitive triathlete. Um, we filmed this episode back in January, uh, January 22nd, 2020. Uh, so it was a live episode. Uh, you'll see that we're sitting at Pure Fitness Canada at 1 York Street in downtown Toronto. Um, what do we talk about? We talk about a lot of stuff. We go really deep into the science of soft tissue therapy as it currently stands. We go um, into mechanotransduction, into force application into human tissue from both a training standpoint as well as a soft tissue application standpoint and, and what does the science say and how does it guide us. Uh, we get into um, outcome measures in, in, in research and, and how to properly assess musculoskeletal research and what some of the um, difficulties may be in doing so. Uh, we talk about the management of triathletes and other endurance athletes. Uh, a lot of injury prevention stuff, a lot of sport performance stuff, uh, especially for endurance athletes in this episode. Uh, anyway, uh, without further delay, I bring you my conversation with Dr. Roger Menta. Conversation is about mechanotransduction. If someone takes an honest look at literature now, we all know mechanotransduction occurs. We all know that it's an important stimulus, the important stimulus for the maintenance of, of tissue, the propagation of tissue, the ongoing health of tissue. Uh, when we say force is the language of cells, this is not something that's ascientific, it is scientific. Cells don't speak languages, they respond to force input. So we know that it responds to force. And I don't think there's an argument there. The argument that I think is most pertinent is, to, is whether or not our external load has directionality. So the argument to me comes at point of contact. We all agree that I can compress tissue. No one's going to argue that you can't compress tissue. No one's going to argue that the compression of tissue leads to mechanotransduction, afferent feedback. The question is, if I compress tissue this way, does it matter if I put force in this direction versus that direction versus that direction? Does the inside of the body feel the directionality of the externally applied force? This is where I think people are saying, we don't know, we don't know, and therefore let's you know, throw out the baby with the bathwater. What we're saying, I think, or what I've always said is that our, the, the area of research pertaining to this is so brand new that for us to say soft tissue doesn't work is to, I mean, if, Al, if Einstein did that, the theory of relativity would still be theoretical, right? If clearly ideas precede research, right? So we have all of this 
experience doing soft tissue work, experience getting results. It's been done for thousands of years. All of a sudden, somebody takes a review of the literature and says, we don't have enough research to justify, and now people throw out soft tissue work, which I think is one of the most unscientific things you can do. Um, there's History is replete with examples of cures that are found well before we know the mechanism of the cure. So where I have a problem with, with soft tissue naysayers is we have a pretty solid theoretical grounding as to why the addition of soft tissue work in addition to training would be helpful. Where I think the divide is is that some people either at the point of contact they say you can't put any directional force, forget it, or they're just claiming that it's I guess unnecessary in a way, but I would say it's unnecessary passively. I'm not going to rub someone and say, take it easy. If the, the treatment is there to improve their ability to train, then whatever you're doing, if it helps the ability to train, it's helpful. Well, can't you just assume though, because one of the issues that we're coming across is the fact that the literature is saying that you can't necessarily put a directional force in. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, is we're actually having an issue defining what the outcomes are. I think that that's it is you've got too many defining like when you look at the research there's this is the outcome in this one this is the outcome in that one and when you try and do a systematic research of 100 papers with different outcomes of course it's going to pan out to be nothing so until you won't see a consistent finding or uh, the best research until they start to use the same outcome because because that's the thing is they've used for years in exercises. Once they determine what the outcome was, whether it be better cardiovascular health, whether it be, you know, better movement capacity, those were defined parameters and then they studied it and then they kept on studying it and they studied it more. So I think that that's where the manual therapy sort of really lags behind. Yeah. It's like they take the, they take the most common theory of the manual therapy and then we're using evidence to disprove that particular theory, but you're disproving the outcome measure that we're using. For example, there's adhesions. So as soon as we think that there's adhesions that we have to break, um, right away that theoretically falls apart. So I agree this concept that we're in there breaking something is a bad thought process. And if you look at people who speak about soft tissue negatively, they'll often point to research on fascia, right? They've determined that in order to break fascia, you need this many newtons of force into tissue. And then you do the research and you realize we can't put that many newtons of force into tissue. And then their conclusion is, ergo, don't do it because you can't break adhesions, you can't break fascia. But we're not, I, I've never claimed to break fascia. The idea that you're breaking fascia is I can't even think of how that was ever justified. I have no idea how someone ever said to themselves, I feel an adhesion and now that adhesion's broken. And I've been teaching manual therapy for my whole career. I've been f completely focused on palpation, maybe because I was the only guy in the room saying, I don't feel this, right? So remember in school, uh, for those listening, we were, went to the same, what year were you? You were. I graduated in 2013, but finished my sports specialty in 2015. In 2015. Okay, so you were how many years behind? I don't even remember. I'm terrible with... Uh, I don't know what year you graduated. Let's say that I, I graduated 47 years before you. <laughs> um, so when I graduated, like when I was going through school, I remember specifically thinking we're in, we're in class, we're, we're doing palpation. There was always an instructor there to say, you know, do you feel that? And then you would have a group full of people and everyone would be nodding. Oh, yeah, I feel it. I feel it. And I'd be in the back and I'd be like shaking my head. I'm like, I don't feel it. I don't know what you're saying. And then the instructor will go, well, you'll know it when you feel it, which is the same thing as saying, I don't know what I'm talking about. Right? Right. You're, so the idea that you, you found an adhesion, the idea that an adhesion can be located is to say that you can feel a single piece of collagen with poor directionality. Right? That's what you're saying. And now you're saying that you can landmark the poor piece of collagen, you can hold it down somehow and rip it apart. So in other words, that whole idea that we're tearing something is, 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 was never my intention, but then we use the word release and then people automatically assume that we're breaking to release. But we've said the whole time, we're not. We're just adding input. We're adding directional input 
And based off of those directional inputs, we're adding further directional input with internal training. So I'll give it to you. If all you're doing is passively treating a client, I don't think you should expect any long-term active results. I don't think it's the law of specificity. Um, but the idea that we could throw away thousands of years of soft tissue work conceivably because someone determined that we can't rip fascia goes along your point with regards to outcome measures. Yeah, and then I think the other side of that that equation is the fact that we don't even have a standardized model for that's using the research for what is soft tissue therapy. Trigger point falls into soft tissue therapy. Foam rolling falls into soft tissue therapy. A lot of these things have been extensively researched, and we know that foam rollers are not breaking adhesions. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, again, if you take anything that's saying, well, I, I applied a soft tissue input, whether it be trigger point foam rolling, uh, any form of, of manual release, and then I'm just going to pair that together, and this is what the research is. Again, same, same idea with the outcome measure. It's not going to produce any finding that you can you can bear in because there's different methods being employed so now it's a methodology type thing as well especially when you go into lit review type work for because sure when you go to lit review type work it, it soft tissue just becomes soft tissue like i did soft tissue so it's like the protocol for the study was we did blah 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 and soft tissue work and then we're seeing whether or not the quote unquote soft tissue work does anything that's like saying is exercise good for your shoulder condition what's your shoulder condition how, how am i supposed to answer that question funny enough I, i've heard a few podcasts now this is a good example to bring this point up they'll talk about hanging have you heard this yeah okay so, fuck okay so they'll say hanging is good for the shoulder because somebody who had a shoulder problem did some hanging and then the, the conclusion is if you have a shoulder problem you should hang as if every shoulder problem has the exact same pathological findings. So if you had a subacromial bursitis irritated with overhead work, for sure don't fucking hang, right? Like it, it, it's, sure. it, there's no such thing as a, a therapy that, that works unless the therapy is applied at the right outcome measure. Acupuncture is a good example. People come in, they say, does acupuncture work? It's a really strange question. It's like, does a hammer work? For sure not when you're trying to fucking screw a, uh, you know, a screw into the wall. It works really well when you're trying to nail two things together. So does acupuncture work? No, acupuncture leads to a specific physiological response. Is that response appropriate for the condition? Yes or no. If it is, it works. If it's not, then it's just, it's not that it doesn't work. It's just that it's not the right tool for this particular job. And I think that's what happens that's what you're talking about in research where it's not a, it's not like this, this particular way of doing soft tissue work better than this particular way it's just soft tissue in general or they grab an outcome measure force into fascia and it's negative therefore all soft tissue work i think people are just really they use research almost in a negative uh, fashion as opposed to using it to build arguments because what is this it's in my opinion, it, research is there so that I can say, okay, what am I supposed to be doing? Go into the research and, and, and try to figure it out based on what we know. But other people use it as a weapon. Like, look at this paper. It says you can't do this. Therefore, don't do it. Which I think is, it's, I, I, I mean, we would, be, we would be so much further behind. We would still be using leeches, you know what I mean? Unless somebody stopped to think about what, what we're actually trying to accomplish. Well, and I think, you know, to take that point just one step further, when we look at we look at it, again, the way the science is dictated or the way it's done is we'll look at soft tissue therapy. But that's that's taking a very isolated view on, on the actual state because we know that that person's going to go from whatever soft tissue therapy they're receiving to living their life. Mm -hmm. And hopefully in that life they're going to be exercising, providing other stimulus, so we have to learn to understand how does the manual therapy impact that? Mm -hmm. Because they are gonna have, they're gonna have a harmonious relationship as opposed to um, one that's countering each other, right? If you create better tissue, you create an environment where training is possible. But if we only study if manual therapy works, 
we're not truly studying the end outcome because the end outcome is can you take this and do something with it at the end that's right which is why we keep saying that i mean if someone comes in and their shoulder hurts let's just bring this right back when someone comes in and their shoulder hurts we're going to assume that they're going to lose their shoulder less is this a it's fair this is a fair assumption we can also conclude from research that if you move something less the speed of let's call it the speed of entropy will increase something will break down faster especially in articulation if you don't use it so if pain is a factor pain leads to less movement we all agree that less movement leads to uh, further biomechanical errors then moving more is a good thing so let's step back and say does touch reduce pain yes absolutely absolutely we know this i don't know that anybody's going to argue that if someone's in pain and we we touch them that we don't have some kind of stimulus even if it's psychological even if it's placebo okay there's a good example why haven't we fucked off the placebo effect like why haven't we just dismissed that and say don't use the placebo effect it's it's nonsense so think about that we know the placebo effect works we don't exactly understand the mechanism nobody is calling for an all-out ban of the placebo effect if anything everyone is saying no you you work up the placebo effect because of these beneficial results which we don't understand but in soft tissue therapy we have results that we don't understand and therefore we're going to just get rid of soft tissue therapy as if there's no logical argument to be made i'm pretty sure we do a study where you know we look at the cellular production of proteins let's just say that that's the if you put any force into that tissue it's going to be altered i don't think anybody would argue that right any amount of, of it's going to be altered so we know that we have an effect can do you think that somebody can argue that no i don't think so even neurologically we have an effect if someone's tense you put your hand on them they relax so there is a an effect that is that is actually seen it's not the effect that we that that we want to see because people obviously wanted to see fascia ripping i guess and therefore it, it's it's it doesn't work but that's that's an illogical conclusion to me we don't even have we're not even we're just getting to the point now where we can start to perceive effects at a cellular level um, so this is the exact wrong time to be telling young practitioners throw away all of your soft tissue work and just you know continue to exercise which i think is the only alternative i think a lot of people in pain uh the pain research people which by the way whoever's listening to this i th i read the same research it's not like i'm ignoring the pain stuff the pain stuff is very important it's very important to understand pain it's very important to understand that biomechanics don't always correlate with pain i'm not i'm not denouncing any of of uh, the pain science research but what I am saying is just because there is pain science research it doesn't mean that everything else is useless and we should just be telling people it's all in their head and continue to train like that's what I hear on the things like, ah, none of that works it, just you know just get them back to the gym and exercise but if that's the case then why are injury rates going higher why do we have such a prevalence of low back pain why why it's not like people are getting better so if the advice is do nothing and just keep training, then I would have expected injury rates to be going down, right? Right. It's like, it's like saying do nothing, but there's a problem. So doing nothing is clearly not an option. Yeah. So then I guess I guess the one question that you can sort of ask is is like when you look at a lot of young practitioners, they're usually influenced by one aspect whether we can call it a physiotherapist we can call it a strength and conditioning specialist so they may throw a little bit more exercise at it. you go to manual therapy school where there's a lot of emphasis and your teacher has it, it creates those barriers right off the bat mm -hmm. and i think that when you look at the system the frs model right that system's inherently built in to not exclude any aspect of it you assess you treat what needs to be treated but you've always followed that up with training and that assessment part is always in a cyclic motion. It's always being coming back, whether or not you look at it from a kin stretch standpoint. Kin stretch for many people is it can be an assessment protocol. So I think 
a lot of times when we look at young practitioners, they're being siloed by what they're being exposed to. So if you're exposed to only exercise or rehab, we'll call it, then you're, you're going to look at anything that denounces or says, oh, yeah, see, manual therapy doesn't work because that's what you know. Confirmation bias. Yeah. I mean, if anything has become very apparent now through recent books and research is that we don't know what we don't know and we think we know things we don't know. Like we pretty much parrot whatever the last thing, most people parrot the last thing people said. So yeah, you're going to spit off what you, what, you, what you were taught or what someone that you look up to does or what they say. Whether or not we're going to pick it apart, uh, most people don't. I, like, I, I just have this thing where I pick things apart to the, the nth level and then people claim, well, you're being too uh, specific. With, but I, I, this, is where, this is where the magic lies in the specificity of what we're doing, right? But getting back to what you were saying with regards to students, um, right off the, right, I, I think maybe with therapy, right off the get-go, maybe, and this might sound very arrogant and I apologize in advance, um, I have this, this funny feeling that the outlook is wrong right from day one. Like as soon as you show up at therapy school, your, your idea as to what your job is the expectations from your patients as to what your job is, the theories from other practitioners in, of other disciplines for what your job is, is already set. You are a massage therapist. People come to you with ouchies and boo-boos and you rub those ouchies away. If you're a chiropractor, you are somehow, your, your realm is the bones and how they line up. So your job is to find bones that don't line up and then clicky-clack them back into place. And if you're a physiotherapist, but that's not how I ever practiced. So I don't know, with regards to pain, I, I honestly tell a lot of my students this and I, I preface it by saying, don't be upset by this. I don't think that we do much when it comes to pain. I don't think that's our job. Like, Someone comes in pain, I understand, we understand the pain process, we can make recommendations, we can help the, the scenario, we can educate. But most of my work comes when the pain's gone. Like when the pain's there, what, are we, what am I doing? I'm just you know, messing around with neurological inputs and outputs, uh, you know, giving tissue work in the, in the idea that it's you know, touching and rubbing and tactile stimulus and placebo, whatever you want to call it, is helpful. So let's just, let's just pretend that in the acute stage, we don't have any physiological response. I'm fine with that too. But the problem is, is that's when the therapeutic uh, relationship usually ends. When someone's out of pain, then they're done. It's like you did your job. And that's because your job is told to you. But my job, in my opinion, is to enhance the way people move their bodies because I think it's pretty easy to conclude that every joint in the body has a particular job and the body is a lot happier when each one of those joints do the job that they're given. And when a joint stops doing its job and it calls upon other joints to help it do its job, that's where problems occur. So what's my job then? It, it, it seems to me like I'm supposed to have an idea as to what your shoulder is for. What, what, is, what the hell is the point of a shoulder? Once you know the point of a shoulder, your job is to promote shoulderism in that shoulder right. as much as you can. What shoulderism? Well, when I lift my arm in the air, you know, at least part of that should be done with my shoulder, which means you see my shoulder move. If I lift my shoulder by hiking my shoulder blade, to me it demonstrates a, a body that doesn't know or, or is unable to perform its basic duties. And our job is to not just treat pain away, but it's to use therapeutic interventions in combination with movement training and practice to, let's call it for lack of a normalize that shoulder's function. And then on that normalized shoulder, you can pile performance. Whereas nowadays, it's just like, 
when to, tell me when it hurts. When it doesn't hurt, just keep doing performance-based exercises. Just keep going. Keep getting better at Olympic lifting because everyone seems to think that that's, you know, your job is to get better at Olympic lifting. My job is to get better at, at Dre. And then if you want an Olympic lift, have at it. But my job is not to make someone necessarily better at Olympic lifting. Olympic lifting coach makes people better at Olympic lifting. Um, our job is to take a joint and promote movement. Just promoting individual joint movement, if all you do with soft tissue therapy is somehow make the cortex understand that the shoulder does this, it rotates in a socket and the scapula does this and here's the difference. If your soft tissue work just makes that apparent and then you combine the soft tissue work with guided movement practice, uh, I mean, that to me seems to be more along the lines of what we should be doing. Well, I think, I think you make a good point there. I think we got to also stop kind of looking at manual therapy as just manual therapy. You know what I mean? There's a, there's a, there's a component of the active process even in the manual therapy process. Like there's, there's that, it, it's, it's not simply you, you do manual therapy and then go train. You can have a continuum. It's, it, it transitions from manual therapy to some active. It could go backwards. It can go forwards. It's the, it's the constant process. It's, it's not a black or white. It's actually a definitive. There is, it's a spectrum. Which makes it inherently more difficult to study. For sure. Which is another reason why we can't be so quick to throw away concepts based on, I mean, even a negative study in that regard. What it tells me is, is not that something doesn't work, rather that it, the outcome measure that we were looking for, that's the... Foam rolling is another good example. For years I've been saying, <clears throat> foam rolling probably doesn't do what you think it does. It's all I've been saying. And believe you me, I have a video on YouTube where I, I talk about foam rolling and I've had to edit the video, I don't know how many times, to preface it by saying, I'm not saying the foam rolling doesn't do anything. I'm just saying it doesn't do what you think it does. And people are very um, quick to say, well, if it doesn't do that, maybe it does that. And in which case I say, well, does it make you feel better? Yeah, does it hurt you? No, okay, I'm not gonna say don't do it. I personally think there's way better uses of your time, but people are very easy. Well, it makes me feel good, so I'm gonna do it and that's okay. But again, soft tissue is put into this other category where you know maybe it doesn't break adhesions get rid of it no maybe it just doesn't break adhesions maybe it does something how many studies have been done with the combination of specific manual inputs into a tissue and then the combination of that with specific guided exercises to influence that tissue is there any studies that you know of where they look at just manual therapy specifically just the training specifically or the combination of the therapy and the training specifically for a specific uh, tissue condition. I've yet to see it. Yeah, and it typically is one or the other. It's, it's not usually the combination. And the combination is, is where, that's where the gold ticket is. That's what we're looking for because you inherently are not just going to have someone rub you or provide manual therapy and that's going to be the end of your life. You're going to go home, you're going to play with your kids. So it's that transition to that active state that needs to be studied. It's actually more important that we understand what's happening in the gray zone than what's happening on the manual therapy or the exercise zone. It's how we're transitioning through that that's actually giving you the, it, 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 it's, it's creating the bridge between the two. Okay, let me ask you this. Is it possible, and let me explain before I, people freak out. Is it possible that it's, an, it's the patient's fault? Now, here's what I mean. I don't mean the patient's fault in that the patient should be scolded for how they live their life, but is it the patient's fault in that people don't get enough education on what species they're part of and how to maintain health in our particular species to be able to even accept the types of work that we do often. 
So you're saying, for example, like I can rub someone's shoulders for 10 minutes only to have them go back to their, their job with, their sh with shitty posture for eight hours a day, lack of sleep, smoker, whatever else they do. Like, can we be expected to do the job if the person doesn't have enough knowledge about human function? Can we expect results? That's what I guess. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, and I think you. I think you. You kind of. You got to look at it both ways, right? Because, is that the patient's fault? There is a component of it being the patient's fault. There's also therapist, trainer, person's fault, right? Because they're not providing that. Because yes, because yes. because we're expected to be again before the before some sensitive person starts screaming at their phone or however you're listening to this. I'm not blaming the patient. I'm saying, is the patient not well equipped enough? And I'm totally taking the blame for that. Not me personally. Uh, it's everyone else's fucking fault. No, uh, but I'm, I'm taking the blame for that in terms of the profession. Like we are our own worst enemy 100% of the time. Because when someone comes in, people are way too quick to say, well, this particular technique will be the thing for you. And they, they almost make it seem like, don't worry, rest assured, I will fix this problem. Whereas I'm telling my clients, I tell my clients almost all the time, I don't fix anything. Please don't expect me to fix anything. That's not my job. I'm here to guide your job, which is to fix yourself. And then inherently it does become the patient's fault if there's not success. If, it's, if they're educated in the proper fashion because is it the follow through there? Is the, are they following through with the recommendation? In the, in the presence of good scientific data that we do have, when we're trying to connect the gray zone, we have to make assumptions until it's studied and it's, and it's proven. So until we can reach that point, if we give advice from manual to active care and you don't follow through, that's, that's not inherently on us, that's on you. Okay, but I still wanna be careful to say it's still not the patient's fault. It's ultimately their lack of action will lead to their demise. That's, so it's in quotations I put fault, but again, do they come to the dance with enough, with an, an, enough steps to be able to keep up? Okay, let's go deep. Do people have enough understanding of how science works to even accept things that are, are scientific, let's call it fact. Like, I mean, nowadays, I mean, I, I, I'm gonna say a resounding no. Well, if we look at the political climate right now, pretty easy to assume that people don't have enough uh, science background to ultimately accept information and process it correctly. Well, and then you've got people online and they're, they're making assumptions driven based on abstracts because we know that you don't have access to all papers and they're becoming self-proclaimed researchers. So they go and read the conclusions from a paper and that's, that's it. Which is, which is such a problem because when you actually go into what you're saying, how do you study research? You don't read the intro. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, read, you read their methods. Yeah. And when you understand how they design their research, you can then say, oh, you know what? This isn't going to pan out to be what we want to see. Or is it, right? Because then you look at all the scientific, then you look at the results and you draw your own results from that. Then does your results match with the conclusions that they draw? That's, that's the scientific process. It's not simply reading what they said and looking at their abstract and saying, well, this is what it means. An abstract is to sell a paper, right? They, $49 is what you need to buy a paper. Mm -hmm. They want to make that paper sound like it's the, if you're going to buy it, you, you need that paper. Sure. So it's, it's a sales pitch to a certain extent. So when you read that, you actually want to dive into the, I mean, it's less of a sales pitch than other areas of life, so I don't want conspiracy theorists, you know, theorists people to jump on this. Oh, science is yeah. bullshit. I mean, I did science, yeah. right? I did research, and the idea that I was somehow influenced by the government, who gave, nobody gave a shit about my research. No. I was studying whether or not core muscles activate while you're standing on a BOSU ball or some shit. The answer is no. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't do anything, but... I mean, nobody could have given a shit about my research at all. I mean, the research is, is research. Is some research fudge? Sure. Um, but 
discussing science, I always tell people, do you have a better way for, for humanity to acquire knowledge? Like, if, if, if someone's going to say, oh, there's no science, like, do you have any other, other way to acquire knowledge? No. So the best way for humanity to acquire knowledge is via science, yes. So then we all have to say, as bad as science can be, we have to, we have to agree to start there, right? We have to agree to start at the science. So with regards to the human body and with regards to our particular species, Homo sapiens, can we make conclusions across the board for how to maintain musculoskeletal health? I think we can. Do you think we can? I do. Okay, so what would be an ultimate truth for musculoskeletal health that doesn't matter who you are, it's, it's, it's true for you as much as the person next to you? Realistically, the if you the more you move, it's going to produce better outcomes. Like it's it, because movement is is one of the outcomes. Movement, yeah. It's the if you were going to say, how do you keep a joint healthy? Move it. That's the answer. There's no scenario whereby blocking the movement of a joint for a long period of time will lead to anything good for the long term result of that joint. So I think if we can all agree that specific joint movements are necessary on a regular basis. I think just that, if, if, if people can give us that, we'd be further along than we are right now, right? And we talk about cars a right. lot, and, and, and I mean, it sucks. If you're listening to this podcast, obviously we're gonna say, do cars, right? But forget about us. If you agree that movement is the thing to maintain a joint's health, then you should be promoting movement on a regular basis. If you can't see the difference between someone who moves with their shoulder versus someone who bullshits their shoulder by hyperextending their spine, I just think you're, you're fooling yourself. Well, I think when we look at it, when we talk about, yeah, people are going to see us sitting here talking, we are going to talk about moving through the, the motion of cars. But if we always just look at even before cars there was tai chi mm -hmm. there was there was yoga practices mm -hmm. there was uh running mm -hmm. there was there were forms of movement that existed before cars and all those forms of movement produced outcomes now if you run you're you're gonna you're gonna create a system that may have certain limitations to improve the outcomes of running because you're not taking it through its entire range of motion all the time but you are producing change to the musculoskeletal system. So we do know that whatever that movement input is, there's an output. Mm -hmm. And that output is changes or alterations to the movement and the articulation. Because we've seen it in hockey players where when they start really young, they get retroversion mm -hmm. of, their, of their hips. We see changes in the the bony the bony pathology or bony structure of a pitcher's shoulders, so we okay, know. So dumbing this down, what you're saying is that clearly movement is going to affect the structure of an articulation moving forward, and we know this from sport examples. Baseball uh, pitchers, for example, have torsion in their humerus. Right. Okay. So we know that movement has this this influence. On the body is what you're saying. Yeah. And I think another thing that you might be getting to is the the types of movements you select are therefore important. 100%. Okay, so this is where, that seems very obvious, but this is where I think that you would run into a lot of argument on with, you know, Twitter. It's a nice way to put this. Twitter scientists. You would, have an, you would have an argument there where they would say, oh, you know, all of this specific movements for your joints, you're, ah, fuck that, just go and go for a jog and you'll be fine. And I don't even, I don't even understand the, the mentality. So, okay, let's, let's do this. So take back pain, for example. When you have back pain and you go to a practitioner, based once again on the research, which if we're going to get into this back pain research, I think is severely flawed for many of the same reasons we talked about earlier I mean talk about not knowing what target you're shooting at it's like 
we're gonna look at SMT, spinal manipulative therapy for low back pain. So let's just take 100 random people with low back pain, we'll manipulate 50 of them, and we won't manipulate the other 50 and see how it goes, which is another way of saying all back pain is exactly the same, which it's clearly not. Are you picking up all of that crazy music in the background? It's starting to pick up. Is it, is it bothersome, or can we continue? You can finish up. No, no, what the fuck I was saying. Oh, I was talking about... Um, I was talking about back pain. Why was I talking about back pain, Menta? Because we were talking about the the inputs. So, like, you're talking about spinal manipulation versus non-spinal manipulation and the, the research in how it's flawed because we're looking at how spe- specific movements can... Yeah, we were talking about the... Oh, yeah, we are talking about uh, the specificity of movement. Yeah. I don't remember why we got here. But going back to that, if we agree that moving... A joint is how to keep health and we agree that sports patternize your body proof being what we just talked about how different sports produce different outcomes then I think it's important to point out that sport in quotes or movement in quotes is not the best advice for playing tennis is not necessarily good for your shoulder but playing tennis is good for you and yes. that's where people get confused. Like, I, I exercise. What do you do? I play tennis. Okay, what do you do for your left patellofemoral joint? I play tennis. Okay, but that's awesome. Tennis is good. There's cardiovascular benefits, fresh air, outdoor, you know, socializing, serotonin release, all that shit's great. What did you do for your left big toe? What do you mean? Well, to your left big, your left big toe doesn't give a shit about your tennis. It, it, it doesn't care about tennis. It doesn't understand tennis. It, do, it didn't evolve with tennis. Your left big toe requires something to maintain its ability to continue as a f- well-functioning left big toe. What does it need? It needs specific big toe movements. And a big problem is how people seem to chunk movement together as if saying movement is inherently good advice. Move more. Move more is good advice, but it's incomplete advice. Because we don't just want people to move shitty joints more. We want people to move in a way to make shitty joints better. Then we want you to move more. And that's and that's the idea is you're trying to express the full joints motion, right? Because if you express that you you give it potential for capacity to do whatever. Because we know if you express the hips in complete capacity, you will not utilize that all during running. That's right. But it's going to take you further and further away from the danger zone. So it's going to allow the, 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 the minimal motion that you are using for running to feel much more normalized. Because mm-hmm. you're, you're not swinging into your end range. You're and, 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 and it's specifically important based on normal human physiological principles. If you only run, and let's say your hip, what, you know what, what, what angle does your, in a, in a somewhat long distance runner, how much, I mean, you know, the knee bends to about 30 degrees mm-hmm. with every, how much, which is the hip? It can't be more than. It's not, it's, it's, it's in between like the 75, 85 degrees. Okay, so it's, it's clearly not all of Depending the on the, the type of runner, but yeah. So, I mean, any person who understands anything about joints will conclude that not all of the mechanoreceptors are activated during the course of going for a jog in the hip. Correct? So, when are those mechanoreceptors that are activated closer to 90 or 100 or 110 degrees, when do those things get stimulated if what you do is run? So, where is the stimulation for those mechanoreceptors and another question would be what generally happens in the body to biological tissue that you ignore it goes away exactly it's atrophy atrophy so those afferent fibers and for people who don't understand what i'm talking about afferents is the signals that come from your joints that go to your brain and if your brain stops getting signals from those fibers it stops making decisions that would promote the ongoing utilization of those particular receptors. Ergo, whatever you don't use, you lose. So is running good for your hips? 
running is good for running and it's good for the pattern of running and the benefits of running can include cardiovascular, whatever, but it's not for your hip. Just like hockey is not for your shoulder, just like yoga is not for your back. Yoga's intended purpose is to make you better at yoga. Unfortunately, everyone emphasizes the uh, secondary benefit of yoga, which is people move more, they feel better. So that's another question I get. Is yoga good for my back? I don't know. I never met your fucking back. <laughs> I mean, yoga is good for a good, healthy back, but it's not good for a shitty back. Or maybe it is in some cases of shitty back syndrome, but in different cases of shitty back syndrome, yoga is bad for your back. It, the questions are wrong. This is what gets me frustrated in the, every time I pretty much open my fucking eyes is that the questions that people are asking are bizarre. I got a back pain. I, I went to yoga for my back pain and made it feel better. Conclusion, all back pain requires yoga, which is crazy. How many yogis you, you practice? I don't know if you, I get a lot of yogis. Do they seem always comfortable? No. I, I don't have, Mitch is in the room. Mitch, yeah. yogis, are, these, are they impenetrable to injuries? Definitely not. Do they just come in telling you about their best, their hips are great and they feel like butter? Talk about all their fancy poses they can do, but also talk about and come in for their pains, whatever it is. Um, so yeah, I would say no. Did I ever say that yoga sucked? I never said that. So once again, whoever's listening, calm down. I'm not saying don't go to yoga. Please go to yoga. It's better than not going to yoga, I suppose. But just remember what yoga is for. Yoga is for the betterment of yoga. Hockey is for the betterment of hockey. Soccer is for the base. Like it has a life of its own. Soccer is not for Roger Menta. Dr. Roger Menta's goal in life. If I were to take, if I were to jump into your body somehow, that would be gross. It would be. But if I were to theoretically jump into your body, and what does your shoulder require? It doesn't require yoga. It doesn't require soccer. It doesn't require hockey. It requires specific inputs into the shoulder that we know maintain the, the health of the shoulder. So what's frustrating is we know what people need um, and we still run up against these arguments that what, you know, people don't need that. People don't need to get massaged. They don't need to get their joints moved. It's fine. It's not fine. You sit in a desk all day. It's not normal, right? That's not a normal thing. We're not in normal human mode right now. We're in weird human mode with the advent of civilization, which is why we're patternized into these problems, which is why it's so ultimately important that you unpatternize yourself and get specific inputs to your shoulder to make your shoulder feel better. Now you do, uh, Dr. Menta here is also a triathlete. You do triathlons and stuff like that, right? So maybe a word on that concept for, let's say you're not a triathlete because triathletes might understand that their whole body needs to be maintained, but runners specifically, they have a, they don't all believe that. Like runners somehow think that running is good. Running is good for me. I am a runner. I will be healthy because I run. Speak to that. Well, I think when we I think when we look at runners, you know, they they're caught up in the understanding that they're trying to acquire a goal, right? Uh, whether that might be uh, I need to lose weight, I need to I sit all day, so I'm going to go run. It's 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 a goal driven thing, right? And they're not necessarily looking at it in any capacity to maintain their entire body. They're actually just taking one simplistic look at an entire goal and saying this is what I want to acquire but they're 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 not looking at the bigger picture which is the globalized motion because from a triathlete standpoint you know the shoulder is just as important as the hips the swim is so crucial we spend um, anywhere between two and four hours in a flex spine position on a time trial bike with hips that are within 15 degrees of your torso so all these things are, are abnormal motions, and they need to be paired with alterations in movement. Abnormal motions. Tell me about this, because this is, somebody's going to be listening to this and say, what do you mean abnormal motions? Well, it's just, it's not, 
what our body was intended to be. Like we were never meant to be sitting in uh, on a carbon frame bike in a fully flexed position with our our knees coming within 15 degrees of our chest purely for the simplicity of aerodynamics to go faster. That's this was not part of the evolutionary process. Exactly. So hunter-gatherers did, did, not. did not put together a two-wheeled object and then mold themselves into the object for four hours at a time. No, they simply they encountered ob- objects along the way upon their movement and they, they navigated them. Mm-hmm. Whether that had been trees, rocks, or if it was simply just bushes or trails. It, it, it created much more diversity. And when we look at the sports of, of running, and we'll, I, you know, I'll, I'll talk more to road running, we get uh, a lot more focus in a linear pattern. Things go in one direction, there's no obstacles, you're on concrete, you make a couple of turns and that's, that's end. You know, there is the advent of trail running, which you'll see it changes the athlete a little bit because they have to navigate more, but they're still not, they're not completely inherently using their entire body because they're not, they're also trying to, many of these people are trying to run at paces that are beyond our physiological means. We are, we are racing. Again, that's a goal driven thought process. When we looked at our hunter gatherer cells, we navigated, we moved as we needed. We sped up as we needed, but it wasn't that often. We just kept on moving. So I think when we look at the body itself, we've got we've to say, okay, this is what the body needs. This is what we're doing. This is need. This is goal. And if, if, if our goal then is transition to what we need to do to maintain a good, healthy body, a homo sapien body, then we'll understand that those sports that we're doing, whether it be running or anything, are not normal. There, yeah, it's not, hockey is not a normal thing to do. So yeah. it, it, it's, it's taking away some of the aspects of saying, okay, I want to run the fastest marathon I can do and focusing on more, I want to have the best possible body so that when I go and run a marathon, I'm not shattered for two weeks after. Yeah, the goals are not, again, the goals are not you. Mm-hmm. Exercise in general, I often say that exercise is a human invention that we invented for the purpose that we're, we can't live the way we're supposed to. So it's a substitution. I always say like, no hunter-gatherer got up in the morning, you know, stretch out, yawn, whatever, eat some leftover carcass for whatever they killed the day before, and nobody goes, you know what, it's a nice day. I'm gonna go for a run for my cardiovascular health. Like, that, that didn't happen. You just ran because a fucking puma was chasing you or whatever, like you just, you ran because you ran. You didn't do three sets of 10. You for sure as hell didn't take 24 hours worth of physical movement and pack it into a 45 minute espresso, you know, f- fucking boot camp class on, on Tuesdays and Thursdays. That's for sure not normal. So like, I always look at people in the gym and, and like, what we're doing, this is not normal either. Like it's, I was going to say before we get we move on I wanted to say because somebody listening to this is going to attack our running thing and they're going to say I always find it interesting on the internet how as soon as you say something people think that you don't you've never read what they read like they they're, oh, well this guy obviously didn't know about this that's how he made his conclusions no I did I, I, I understand we are hunter gatherers the reason our species is where it is today is because we are persistence hunters we are designed for long distance running so to speak all fine and dandy, but guess what hunter-gatherers also did in addition to long-distance running to persistence hunt? They also climbed. They also uh, gathered. They also fought. They also threw things. They also hid. They, they jogged. They ran. They ducked. They crawled. They did all of those things. But when you're an eight-hour-a-day office worker who likes to run, now it gets confusing. Is running good for you? the question changes because the perspective changes because you can't say running is good for you. Can you say running is generally good for humans? Sure, but it's not a specific enough question, which, which is, I guess, what we're alluding to right now, I suppose. For sure. Yeah? How's your training going? My training is going pretty good. I actually have a race coming up in uh, about 18 days, uh-huh. flying, flying south to Phoenix to do a half marathon down there. 
Um, then we'll start to prep for the half Ironman season and the full Ironman come late August. Okay. So it's, it, you can see it's, it's transitioning, um, you know, for the last four or five months, I've spent a lot of time in what we call base miles, which is, um, that low heart rate, mm -hmm. uh, Level two. zone two, zone one, zone two, mm -hmm. depending on what, what the goal is, depending on the sport aspect, but we're just trying to create a capacity. We're just trying to build up the, the ability, the availability for the heart to be able to handle what's coming. Now we're starting to transition into a strength phase. So we're putting on some power into the bike. So there's all these fluctuations, but the one thing that we always are seeing within, especially because I work with my own coach, but what we're always trying to do is we always hit the 80-20 rule, mm -hmm. which means that 80% of my training is conducted in that zone one, two phase with 20% in those, those much higher phases. And that might be 80-20 in a week. That may be 80-20 in a session. It may be 80-20 within the entire microcycle, mesocycle, mm -hmm. because the reality is, is we're always trying to build that capacity, that zone two. So okay, so let's. This is this is important because you said something very interesting. You said you're doing some a, a form of training to prepare your heart. Okay, so <clears throat> I often say um, I don't believe in sports specific training. I believe in tissue-specific training for sports. So, and people get confused at that too. Like, I, I look at it, if I'm preparing an athlete, I'm looking at what tissues need to produce load, what tissues need to absorb load, what tissues need to dissipate load, and how are my exercise selections affecting the capacity of those tissues to give me the outputs that I want. Other people are training or molding people to the sport. So they're not training tissue specific, they're training for their sport. So you said about training the heart. That's a, something that people don't talk about nowadays. There's, there was a, a, a change there where people did a lot of low level aerobic work and then all of a sudden people started saying, you don't need any of that low level aerobic work. We can just do high intervals and we can get the exact same um, result. But, but if, if we start to look at that research, we actually don't see that it produces the same results. So when we look at that low aerobic stuff, it increases capillarization, mm -hmm. which increases the ability for the, muscle, the working muscles to get oxygen-rich blood when you are putting them through, let's say, increased paces. Is that important? I'm just joking. Of course. And then we also see that that low aerobic stuff is actually what attributes to increases in the VO2. Mm -hmm. That's the changes that we see. And as we push the VO2, more working uh, oxygen again to those muscles, it, get, it increases performance. When we look at the upper end training, that, that zone four, five stuff, we start to see that that's actually just changing how your body's producing or using some of the metabolites. And even more important, when we start to look at what that's doing, we've actually, there's, there's a body of research that's coming out that about, it's about six hit sessions or sessions where there's that high interval mm -hmm. that produce the maximum amount of outcome going into a competition, right? So there's, a, some, there's some type of adaptation that's taking place when you do hit training that's priming you for that. And, and, but it's not necessarily if you do 12, you don't get more. Mm, okay. It's so there's a finite level because you're just using a new system and you're priming it for racing. But what we haven't seen is that when you contribute more aerobic training, you get constant increases. There's still, you can see runners that start at 0 0.0, you know, couch to 5K, they get better. You know, you see in two years, they're doing a half marathon. In, in, in three years, they're doing an ultra marathon. So they're, 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 they're constantly experiencing adaptative changes that is allowing the system through physiology to go further, to go harder. Eccentric hypertrophy of the ventricles <clears throat> based on low load blood mm -hmm. uh, pool. Like, I mean, there's so many different, but that's a good, it's like, again, the, the people aren't taking a bird's eye view of their life cycle. They're taking, I got to do this, this race in two months. And then they're not, they're not wondering about how the training they're selecting for the race in two months is going to affect their race in eight months. 
they only care about what the effects are in the rate in the two months. I'm an MMA guy, so for me, it's like uh, when they talk about Nick Diaz and Nate Diaz, and like, oh, they have all this cardio, and then they they say they're triathletes, and and then you don't see even in MMA training, they look at those guys and they go, those guys can fight for 30 rounds, they never get tired, but then you look at the training and it's still all high interval training. So people, again, are still preparing for the next fight, preparing for the next fight. They're not preparing for their third year of fighting, their fourth year of fighting. They're not accumulating this gas tank over time, uh, which is, I mean, no one's going to say that what Nate Diaz does for cardio is not working. No one would say that. But someone will say that I'm not going to do what Nate Diaz does for cardio because, you know, it's not how we do it. We do interval, fucking CrossFit, whatever, whatever you're doing. Well, and it's, you know, the cardiovascular system is no different than the other components of the musculoskeletal system that we were previously talking about, right? If you go, you know, you always hear these people, they walk into your office and they say, oh, when I was 18, I, uh, I, I, ran, a, I ran a 250 marathon. And, and then you look at them now and they go, oh, I can't run a 250, I run, I run a four hour, but I'm not sure I could even finish that. Well, what have you been doing between then and now? I haven't done anything. I, I went to university. I did this, and so the system can the system can atrophy like every other part of the system. You need to, you know, use it or lose it. And I think and and it it may be easier. There 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 is some evidence that it may be easier to acquire it, and that's probably very that's a nervous system input. Your nervous system may not completely forget, so it'll it'll regenerate that quicker than it may have in someone that's just completely starting from. Bare bones. And you made me think of something that is 100% fact, and we know this to be true, and it kind of proves what you're what you're saying is that like if you if someone comes to me, they're 27 years old, and they're getting into body weight conditioning, and they want to, they want to be a gymnast. It's too late, bro. Like, come to me 20 years ago because it you can't accumulate as much specific tissue adaptation as has been done from someone who's been training gymnastics from the beginning in other words you can't ju- people think like they, they want to believe that training will if as long as you try hard training will get you what you want and that's kind of that's not true either sometimes it's it's it's, it's not too late for you but it's too late to acquire certain capacities like you can't make a gymnast at 40 years old you can, don't get me wrong, you can do amazing things, but you're, you're not making a gymnast at 40. That requires years and years of accumulated benefit. And I think that's what you're saying. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's interesting you make me think of like a personal story from myself. When I, when I first started triathlon competitively about four or five years ago, you know, I, I came out of the system weighing 215 pounds. And I actually, I was quite From Cairo he- school, Cairo school. And even up in the high school, I was, I was a relatively, uh, heavier individual. So the adaptation that had been put on my body for years was 215 pounds. Whether I rode a bike, whether I went for a run, it was 215 pounds, 215 mm-hmm. pounds. Mm-hmm. I then went and I started to shed the weight. So I sit at, I sit at a 180 comfortable, but the difference in that weight has made me a very strong cyclist. Because the, 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 my body's so used to, for its whole life, like you said, starting young, to having the power to generate force over 215 pounds. So then now at 180, as long as I maintain that, you actually start to see those characteristics. Mm-hmm. They're, they're inherent. Yeah, you, can't, you, can't un, you can't unlearn bone density development. Yeah. Like, if you've spent years with high, high weight bone density stimulation, then you're going to have dense bones. Well, it's funny because we were joking around with uh, with my coach at one point, and that's what they said. He's like, "I wish I could just take every person, mm-hmm. make them a little bit heavier, mm-hmm. and then turn them into a cyclist. Like, yeah. cut yeah, them yeah, down yeah, because yeah. if you if you get them young and heavy, they're powerful. And that's and what we know is we want strong legs for those. I don't know why I thought about that, but you remember that show, The Biggest Loser? Mm-hmm. I mean, that show was terrible for several reasons. I don't want to get into, but one of the things I remember is that they. Uh, they strapped, they took people and they strapped like 50 pounds of weight onto their stomach. And they're like, look what this, and then got them to walk around. They're like, well, look, you see, you see how you feel when you have all this weight? And, and I was like, well, that's kind of a shitty experiment because that's not what happens. 
because you don't just put on 50 pounds yeah right well you know what i mean like your body does to a certain extent get used to the 50 pounds in time um i, I don't think that helps your conversation but i just thought of that as being a good example yeah it's we just no it's 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 just the adaptation right and i mm-hmm. I, th- I think that that's I think that can kind of bring full circle to everything that we've been talking about because the reality is we're imparting a load to create an adaptation. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that it ends there because then you impart a new load and you create a new adaptation. As you age, you may have slower forms of adaptation, but it doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. There's no evidence that it just stops. Mm-hmm. But if you put a load in, force, changes occur I mean bringing this into a more controversial area um, there was a uh, a mixed martial arts fighter uh, I don't remember the name if you remember Mark was born a man and then uh, Uh, born a man but now fights women's MMA transition a lot so uh, I think Rogan Joe Rogan was getting a lot of heat from what he was saying and what he was saying is that just because you you've you have a gender alteration doesn't mean that the adaptations that occurred previously aren't still there i don't want to get into the nuts and bolts of that uh, you know people should be able to do what they do but he made a good point right if that person was under the influence of testosterone under the influence of more weight more uh, skeletal muscle mass natural skeletal muscle mass for a longer period of time you can't ignore the effect on the resultant size of the bones in the hand, the resultant size of the frame, and you also can't make an argument that having a larger hand doesn't relate to uh, the greater ability to, to knock someone out because you're just ignoring fighting for the last 20 years. Like we, we, we do know these things occur. So again, it's like adaptations don't go away um, especially when the influence is a long-term influencer, um, and I think that's what you're, what you're alluding to there. For sure. Yeah. Anyway, um, thanks for coming out there, uh, Doctor. Right. Thank you for having me. Do you have me. anything you want to share? You're teaching FR Upper Limb this weekend. Yep. Is it Upper Limb this weekend? It is Upper Limb this weekend. Upper Limb this weekend uh, in Toronto um, at uh, Pure. Uh, our the uh, Functional Range Systems Headquarters, 1 York Street, beautiful downtown Toronto. We also have an FRC Toronto this weekend that I'm teaching uh, at Apex Training Center in Vaughan, uh, which is a great place to check out. Uh, Who's coming out to help you? I have John Quint from uh, Westside Barbell fame. Uh, he's also one of our instructors. And uh, Dana Heimbecker is another instructor coming out. So. We have a good group, and then I th- what, what's coming up? I think we have some uh, bunch of seminars coming up. FunctionalAnatomySeminars.com. Uh, you can go and check out the dates on the website. And that's it, man. Take awesome. It easy. Thanks for coming out. Thank you. All right.